Amen. Hey, this morning we are going to be in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. You begin to make your way, tap your way, find your way there. The final presidential debate was held this week. And a little over a week from now, an election day will follow an early, a lengthy early voting period. Two candidates in the major parties have staked out their positions. And as you've seen, as you've heard, as we've witnessed, as we've heard reported, they firmly staked out diametrically opposed positions. Seemingly, Trump and Biden might agree on nothing else other than their opponents being unfit for the office. Whether you've been enticed to vote for one of the two of them or some dark horse candidate or to write in perhaps your kindergarten teacher so that finally, possibly, potentially, that we might learn some manners and basic civility in the midst of public discourse. Is that Miss Swakowski or how did you? We will have as a country an opportunity to cast our votes in a matter of days and hopefully to have a clear indication for who has been elected. Of the many lessons learned throughout this election, you can see how each of the candidates has essentially made an argument for how their plans for the country are best, how the, his opponent's plans for the countries are terrible and they're an awful road to head down, how they are far better than their opponents. They've been making an argument in some sense that they are worthy of our vote. Ultimately, that they are worthy of our hope. And they've looked around and, and, and they've recognized a number of things going wrong. And so they have led us to believe that they are worthy of our hope that there is an end to the ravages of the coronavirus. They've led us to believe that there is an end to this present difficulty and that hope is found in them. And they've led us to believe that they are the answer for the chaos that's enveloping our nation and is quickly approaching upon the world. See, but when this election wraps up, when one of two things happen and that's either Trump or Biden being elected, we will as Christians in our response to this outcome reveal something about the nature of our relationship with Christ. We will reveal to what depth our relationship with Jesus transforms who we are and we will reveal whether or not we believe him to be worthy of our allegiance and our worship. You're going to make a choice. You're going to vote for one of the two of them. You're going to vote for a third-party candidate. You're going to write in or you're not going to vote. But how we respond in the midst of this reveals something deeply interior to who we are, and it reveals what we've placed our hope in. Today we conclude the citizenship series and this understanding of what it means to be a citizen, not of an earthly kingdom, but to be a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. You'll remember that as we started and as we looked in, in Genesis and evaluated the endeavor of unity when humanity gave themselves to working together to build the Tower of Babel, how we learn from that lesson that God has not created humanity to be independent of him, but to remain dependent on him. In 1 Timothy 2, we came across the idea that we are to pray for kings, those God has placed an authority over us, but we are to rend our hearts and to serve the sovereign king over all. 
Last week, we spent a great deal of time evaluating the message in the life of David and Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 about what it looks like to pursue righteousness over ease. And today we recognize this, this opportunity that Christians recognize the worth of their king and give themselves to worship him with abandon. As citizens of an eternal kingdom, we are those who have entrusted our hearts to a sovereign king who rules everything. We recognize the worth of his son and we worship him with abandon. And we will see this laid out clearly within the verses of Revelation 5, 1 through 14. Tell you what, let me read this for us, ask you to follow along, and then we'll, I'll lead us once again in a time of prayer. John writes, and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard from around the throne the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Let me pray. Father, would you guide our hearts in worship? God, would you give us a clear picture of your son and of his worth, and would you lead us to abandon lesser gods? Would you call us to recognition of all the idols that we have created within our hearts, within our hopes, and we have set for ourselves in our future, and would you destroy them? Would you obliterate them? Would you leave them with no mark, no claim to our lives? Would you give us a picture of a future we've not seen so that we might live today differently? Help us not to live with lesser dreams. Help us not to live with smaller realities, but help us to live with the incomparable worth of the Lamb firmly sealed upon our hearts and our hearts been made steadfast unto that hope. Help us to worship Jesus better. God, would you lead and guide us in the midst of this place as we give our hearts to worship you in the careful study of your word. 
God, would you transform our waywardness? Would you confront us with our laziness? God, would you awaken our minds and our hearts to the realities that you have set before us? Would you give hope to the hopeless? Would you steal fear from those who are captivated by it and give them a spirit of courage? Help us to place our full faith and trust in your son Jesus and his accomplishment upon the cross and in the good future that he sets before us as recorded by John here in Revelation chapter 5. We submit these things in this time to you for your renowned glory and worship. Amen. Amen. I've been hesitant to preach through the book of Revelation simply, well, largely because I don't have nearly enough fancy-looking slides. You notice we don't have any pictographs on the stage, and I wasn't able to get a tank or scorpions to fly around the room. And so all of these things have made me terrifically hesitant to enter into a series on this because this has largely been the mainstay, certainly within Southern Baptist life for a number of years. I'm also reminded that uh, during the 1980s, one of the best-selling books was was a book that, that, that put forth that Christ would return in 1988, and it sold really well up until about 1989. Perhaps he meant 2088. I don't plan on being here for that. But Revelation gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus. Now, as we step into Revelation chapter 5, a number of things have transpired. John has been exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He has had a vision of Jesus recorded in chapter 1, and he's had these, these letters to the different churches that are recorded up through chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he is welcomed into the throne room of heaven, so to speak. And there in this throne room of heaven, John is given a vision of God. And in verse 9, it says, And whatever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns down before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So this is the scene. John is there in the, th in the throne room of heaven. And before him sits God on his throne. And God on his throne, and he holds within his right hand a scroll. And, and, and there around God are 24 elders and four living creatures. Now, the 24 elders are likely some combination of the 12 tribes of Israel and the apostles. And so we see those kind of come together, and it adds up for what seems to be a representative uh, for all humanity. And so these 12 tribes, and then we have the 12 apostles. And then we have the four living creatures who are described as being these winged creatures, and so we get a picture from Isaiah 6 that these creatures, these living creatures, are likely the seraphim who are around the throne and are declaring over and over and over again to God, holy, 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 Lord God, are you. So they're all there, they're all rending praise, delivering praise to God, and John is there in the midst of this vision, and before him, on the throne, he sees God the Father with a scroll in his hand. And it stirs up curiosity. And his curiosity is quickly answered with a mighty angel who shows up on the scene, steps into the room with a megaphone, and preaches or proclaims who is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. Now, when somebody asks you the question, who is worthy, you want to respond. 
You want to give them the answer. He is worthy. She is worthy. And so when the angel steps in, he says, who is worthy? The 24 elders begin to look around. The living creatures begin to look around. And God the Father nods affirmingly. And John begins to look, and, and, and an investigation is entered into. And verse 3 tells us that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So this is the investigation that starts. John's in the midst of these things. The angel has led us to know that there is a problem. We've got to find someone worthy. And so they start in heaven, and they look all over heaven. They come to earth. They look all over the earth. They look under the earth. And so they look for all those living and dead and those in heaven. And no one is found worthy. Now, what the scroll represents is the fulfillment of God's ultimate salvation and bringing his judgment. And so John evaluates these things, and he recognizes that no one anywhere is found. And so what does John do? John recognizes that the will, the pattern, the plan of God is being thwarted, and so he is broken. He cries. Now, John's not a silent crier. He doesn't let a little tear and say, tear. John is giving himself to open weeping and convulsing and writhing in agony because he recognizes from his perspective the plan and providence of God has now been thwarted because not a single person can step up and be worthy to open the scroll, worthy to fulfill the blessings and the promise and the ultimate judgment of God. So there John is crying in the throne room of heaven. God the Father has witnessed the four living creatures and the 24 elders. He says, I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And then in verse 5, everything begins to change, to be set right. So one of the elders said to me, weep no more. One of the elders turns to John and in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his being overcome with brokenness, he tells him, you got to cut that out. There's no reason for you to cry. Now look at the second command that he gives him. He says, weep no more, behold. He doesn't just tell him to cut out the crying and to pay attention. He says, listen, you need to quit crying and you need to look decidedly at the lamb. In the midst of this gathering, a new figure has appeared and this figure is going to transform and change everything. He says, weep no more, behold, look at, observe, don't take your eyes off of who? the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, because he has conquered and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so this elder comes forward and he transforms John's actions. He says, stop crying, look at the lamb, and he's decidedly different. Who is he? He tells him he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We see this, these two messianic promises that, that, that are revealed here within this in Genesis 49 and verses 9 and 10. Moses writing, he says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The lion of the tribe of Judah. We begin to see this messianic promise made of the one who would come, who would set all things right. And the elder says, pay attention, behold, there he is, the long-awaited one. And he references again from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, which says, there shall come from the stump of Jesse a branch, and from his root shall bear fruit. 
Verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall be upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We recognize that in this moment, in the midst of his crying, the answer to the agony of the universe is the long-awaited Messiah. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and what has he done? He tells us he has conquered. He has overcome. We read in the New Testament, in the culmination of the Old Testament, that the line of the tribe of Judah, that the root of the stump of Jesse has overcome sin and death. He has overcome the grave so that there might no longer be tears, so the judgment of God might be answered for. Look at what he says in verse 6. John is told to behold, and so he casts his eyes over, and he says, in between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. And here he is described as a lamb. Now John gives us this interesting connection. He says he is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now how does a lamb stand but also give us the recognition that it's dead? With standing because this lamb has conquered. He's standing because this lamb has overcome. But he gives us the appearance of having been slain because, in fact, he has. Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who is considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. So we see this land. We see those who have been giving worship, those who have been, giving, who have been given direction, and then we see this figure walk in who is decidedly different, and everyone is told to look at him, to behold him, to pay attention to him, because paying, to paying attention to him could change, could translate, could radically transform everything so he looks at him what he sees is bewildering look at the description that john gives us he says he's standing there as those slain but he's got seven horns seven eyes which are the spirits of the seven which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth and so we come to this understanding and 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 if you're anything like me this is one of the things you're like i knew it was coming weird imagery that i can't populate within my mind he knows i have no what's that thing called Imagination is the word you're looking for. You have none of it. And so this is what he's describing in there. These things are metaphors. And so we're not meant to see a lamb with all these eyes kind of wrapped around its head and horns just kind of popping out. What's up? Popped out all over the place. What we are meant to see in the midst of this is the power behind the metaphors. What are eyes used for? Ooh. Everybody say seeing. Now close your eyes and say the same thing. What are eyes used for? There you go. Some of you shut your mouth when you close your eyes. That's a scary thing. You need to work that combo out. And so eyes are used for seeing. Eyes are used for seeing. If we don't have eyes, we can't see. The number seven stands within the Bible as the number of completeness or perfection. And so what we recognize is this lamb has seven eyes. He is all, everybody say, seeing. What the horn stands for is power. And so he has perfect vision, he is omniscient, he sees everything, and he has the full number of completeness of horns, he has perfect power. Everybody say, perfect vision, perfect power. 
He's got perfect vision and perfect power. And then we see this relation to the Holy Spirit of God, these seven spirits of God. So the fullness of the Spirit sent out in chapter 1 to the seven churches and sent out here into all the earth. So this is this lamb, right? And this begins to not make any sense to us. This all-powerful, all-seeing representation of Christ, the Messiah, all-seeing, all-powerful, standing, but slain. And he gives us this depiction so that we would focus on, remember his sacrifice, but see him standing to remember his sacrifice has not left him in the grave, but his sacrifice has stood him worthy, entitled, ruling in the midst of the throne room of God. So we still have this problem. First two, the angel stood there and said, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals? All we've seen is a lamb. But what this lamb does next begins to shut every mouth. What this lamb does next begins to change every attitude. What this lamb does next begins to draw them to worship. It says he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And look what happens when he takes the scroll. So when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And we read in Psalm 141 and verse 2, that prayers are as incense before God. So this is the response they have. They're, they're up there and they're looking and the search has been made in the heavens and on earth and under the earth and no one is found that is worthy and suddenly a lamb shows up standing as the, but yet as slain and they still need somebody to take the scroll and simply he walks over there, he reaches out and he takes it and when the 24 elders and when the four living creatures recognize this terrific display of power, what do they do? They fall to the ground. They have in their hands instruments of worship, this incense before God which is a, play, a pleasant, fragrant aroma before him and these harps, they're making music before God but what they recognize in that moment is the greatest form of worship they get engaged in is hitting the ground. What they recognize in that moment is his insurmountable worth. What they recognize in that moment is finally one stands before them who is worthy. He takes the scroll and they hit the ground. And verse 9 says, and then they began to sing a new song. It's worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seat question from the angel in verse 2 is who is worthy not by what he said not by a convincing argument but by what he did the lamb is worthy and they recognize his worth and a recognition of his worth leads them to no other action but to bow their faces before him and to give themselves to abandon and worship See, when we recognize the worth of our king, we can do nothing else but worship him. When we recognize the worth of our king, we can do nothing else but worship him. The question was, who is worthy? And they declare, verse 9, worthy are you. The question was, who is worthy? And they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. Simply put, Jesus is made worthy because Jesus offered up his life and died. Jesus is worthy of your service. Jesus is worthy of your obedience. 
not because of his good moral teaching, but he is worthy because he was slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He gives us a sense there that there is no end to the ransoming work of the Lamb. There is no end to the to, there is no end or limitation whereby men might be saved. His blood covers all, extends to all, and is covering the earth even today. Any type of man, woman, or child hears the gospel and responds to it is because of the blood of the Lamb. Any time that we lead them in a faulty, failed, stumbling, bumbling articulation of the gospel and they respond in faith, it's not on the basis that we've done well or we've been witty or we've been clever or winsome. It is on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. He has saved them and he saves them still. He says, you're made worthy because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Man, this should give us the impression, it should lead us to a decided declaration and observation that when we are with him on the new heavens and in the new earth, that that place will be filled from people who radically disagree with us about the decisions in this election. When we are in this place, we will be there with people who warred against our ancestors. When we are in this place, we will be there with people who look at us and say, why is he or she there? And our only answer will be, it's the blood of the Lamb. And their only answer will be, it's the blood of the Lamb. Not I was right about this, not she was right about that. Our answer only ever gets to be, the blood of the Lamb has covered me. The blood of the Lamb has secured my entrance. The blood of the Lamb has made me worthy to worship. The blood of the Lamb for every person and every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and people, the blood of the Lamb covers all. The blood of the Lamb unifies. You're slain, and by your blood you ransom people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And look what he does. It makes them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He makes them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they're going to reign on the earth. This is what we get to do for all eternity. In some sense, we get to rule alongside with God. In some sense, we get to judge angels. In some sense, we are there with him, with people we disagree with and think, how could they possibly be this wrong? And he's going to make us enter into this epic group assignment for all eternity, and our main declaration of praise is rendering worship back to him. It's the main facet of our role in the new heavens and the new earth is worshiping him in the future with people who today we look at and say, you're wrong, I can't believe how despicable you are. This is the transforming power of the blood of Jesus. This is the transforming work that our God is going to affect and he's going to bring. That while we can, be, while we can disagree on tertiary elements, if we agree on the blood of the lamb and the redemption offered in Jesus Christ and we secure our place in heaven based upon his graciousness and not our good deeds. Amen? So John recognizes, he says, listen, the worship wasn't done yet. And so you've got the four elders, you've got the, you've got the 24 elders, you've got the four living creatures bowed on the ground and they're singing this new song. He says, then I looked and I heard from around the throne the living creatures, the elders, and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. John said, listen, the ceiling erupted and everywhere, and I just couldn't count that many. There were angels everywhere, and they began to sing this song, singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The angels, in some sense, they're observing this, and they bust in and they say, Our voices will be counted. We will be heard. We must worship the Lamb. They recognize His worth, and they give themselves to worship, recalling the refrain, Worthy is the lamb he's worthy because he was slain and he's going to receive all the power and all the wealth and all the wisdom and all the might and all the honor and all the glory and all the blessing this is who the lamb is this is what the lamb deserves 
Oh, and as citizens of the king, we must be those who join with the chorus of the lamb. We must be those who join with the chorus of the four living creatures and the 24 elders. We must be those who worship. So this is the scene, this throne room of heaven. We have these four living creatures. We have the 24 elders. We have the angels all gathered around, and John is just thinking, man, breathe, breathe, John, breathe. But the worship's not done yet. Our God's surpassing worth and his terrific power and might leads not just to the angels. It leads not just to the four living creatures. It leads not just to the 24 elders. It goes everywhere. John says in verse 13, he says, I heard every creature. Everybody say every creature. He said, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Everything ever created crying out in uniform voice saying to him who sits on the throne, to God the Father and to the Lamb, to Jesus Christ his Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It says, and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down in worship. Simply put, when it gets to be at this point, when the chorus of praise has risen so high that the angels have joined in, when the chorus of praise spills well beyond the throne room of heaven and it spills onto the earth and it goes under the earth, we're going to have earthworms crying out, glory be. We're going to have birds crying out, glory be. We're going to have the fish of the sea. We're going to have every animal, perhaps even cats, crying out, worthy are you. Went too far, didn't I? Y'all, this is our future. These aren't words meant to just encourage us. These aren't words meant to just fire us up. This is a sure promise in the future. These things are going to happen just as sure as they happened yesterday, even though they were declared almost 2,000 years ago. They will be the reality when he peels back the heavens and he descends. This is the reality we're moving for. This is the reality that translates all despair in the midst of these things. Because of this, because of this ultimate reality, because we are citizens of the king, we neither set our hopes on kings of this earth nor lose all hope at their rising or their falling. Listen, some of us are going to be prone to despair or supreme elation as a result of the election on November 3rd. Don't give your heart to that. Jesus has won your heart. For the lamb was slain. So this means it it tempers our elation if the election goes the way that we want it to. This means that it restrains our despair if the election goes in a different way. Because we are citizens of the king. Because we are citizens of the king, our eternal worship of Jesus begins at our salvation and should be evident throughout our lives in our obedience. We worship him in our work. We worship him in our marriages, we worship him in our parenting, we worship him in our singleness, and we worship him in our suffering. The lamb is worthy. In our response to the difficulties of life, we report whether or not we believe him to be. In how we engage the mundane areas and avenues of our work, saying, oh my goodness, it's another Monday coming And how we enter into that, we recognize that our God gives us an opportunity to worship the lamb in the midst of being industrious. 
We recognize in the midst of difficult relationships and in our marriages, he gives us an opportunity to worship him as we cohabitate, as we live in, a covenant, in the covenant of marriage with another sinner made in the image and the likeness of God who believes that you're wrong and you believe they're wrong. And it can be worshipped. We worship him in parenting and we worship him in singleness and we worship him in suffering and sickness. And we worship him all the way up into death and we worship him as we attend the funerals of our loved ones. Y'all, the lamb is worthy of our worship. Because we are citizens of the king, the future worship of men and women from every tribe, language, people, and nation should spur us on to evangelistic zeal for the spread of the gospel. And it should do so more consistently and urgently so that we might be joined alongside one another in worship with those who as of yet remain far off. When we read this depiction that said that we're going to rule with these and, and this is who they are and this is what they've done, should lead us to look at a map and dream. Should lead us to drive down our streets and pray. Should lead us to go to our schools and weep. It should lead us to be around our families and submit ourselves to what a vision of them submitting and following Jesus could look like. The lamb is worthy. And we worship him in submitting to the reality of this future worship and being obedient to him now. And the future worship of all created beings directed at God is a certainty. The reality there in verse 13, that I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them saying, this is a future reality. God has not given us this as a possibility. He's not given us this and said, listen, keep your fingers crossed. I think this thing could come to bear. He's given us this as a certainty. This is how it will go. Because he's given us this as a certainty, we were able to endure, which all will endure, no pollster or potentate can ill effect. As citizens of the king, we both recognize this and worship its coming reality. Listen, there are a number of different people, organizations, ideas, and difficulties. In some sense, competing for your affection. They want you to find your ultimate purpose in them. Is a, is a man, woman, or child created in the image and the likeness of our God? He has created you to know him. In knowing him, to worship him. In worshiping him, to follow him. This is why you were created. And if we will, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom first and an earthly kingdom second, begin to bring that reality into our present, it'll radically transform every encounter, every engagement. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, he is the lamb who is slain so that you might be forgiven of your sins. The answer for you isn't voting right. The answer for you isn't acting right. The answer for you is to know the lamb who is slain. To come to know Jesus. That in knowing Jesus to be forgiven. That in knowing Jesus to be set free. But listen, if you know Jesus, 
quit searching for answers in politics and in family and in business and in marriages and in children and in wealth. Find the worth of who he has made you to be in the lamb who is slain. Because the slain lamb, he stands, he rules, he's coming again, and he and he alone are worthy of your worship. He and he alone is worthy of your heart. And he and he alone will not fail. Let's be a people who give our hearts to the passionate pursuit and worship of the lamb, and to do so with abandon. Would you pray with me? Father, your goodness knows no end. It should be the steady declaration of our hearts. But we are easily distracted. We easily give our hearts to lesser pursuits, to smaller idols. So God, would you awaken us to the urgency of serving you with all that we do. God, would you help us to recognize the difference between a temporary good done for a little while and an eternal good done forever. You have overcome sin and death through Christ. That we will gather around the throne and worship for all eternity is a certainty. You have won. And although we've not yet lived as residents in your kingdom, we exist today as citizens of it. So God, would you help us to do that well as we live here in this place as sojourners and aliens, calling men and women, follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Come and worship the Lamb. Father, we submit these things to you in his name. Amen.